Hey, Jack, it's Claudine. I just got done listening to um, Night's Plutonian Shore. That was really bucka wow, awesome. Um, a great job. Um, I hope you keep continuing with this. This first steampunk thing should do well. Um, talk to you soon. Bye. Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 1 The Official Anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Cheerio, Welly. How are... Good Lord, man! What is it? Even in this catacomb lighting, you are a sight. Have you slept? Not a wink. This recent lost case involving Agents Campbell and Hill is driving me a bit mad. It is all terribly exciting. A murder of an American poet that is still somewhat unresolved. Agents Campbell and Hill subdued, possibly by the man behind this poet's death. A spirited chase across the deserts of Blackstaff, Arizona, on a wagon thopter, and Agent Campbell staging a daring rescue of his comrade. And this is the tale at present. The rest of the case file has gone missing. Um, Mally. I... I hid the other half of the case file in my desk. I didn't want you to finish it without me. Uh, This is quite an exciting case, and I didn't want you to spoil it for me. So, uh, I I hope you're not upset. Not too upset. Not silently fuming about spending your evening rifling through the archives for this. Right then, I'll put the kettle on. A nice strong cup of coffee. You'll feel better in no time. There's a good chap. Get your friend off the train before it reaches Eastwood Ravine, Amboy said, consulting two of his watches, the brass horn just barely conveying his quiet words. He retrieved a scrolled leather bundle from a crate and stuck it into Campbell's lap. Twenty-two minutes. That's as long as you get. My time to act is at hand. Amboy pulled up on his tethers. At the same time, he tugged a cord and a trapdoor suddenly swung open in the floor beneath Agent Campbell's chair. The flying machine aimed diagonally upward. His restraints let go, his seat's right angle straightened, and he slipped free, sliding directly ahead like a projectile onto the observation car's rear deck. Bruce managed to fit every curse word he'd ever known into that brief descent. He rolled to save his ankles from fracture, slamming hard into the carriage's interior wall. The ornithopter's bottom plank scraped the observation deck's awning, then loped upward and out of his sight. The sharpshooter gun soon ceased firing at it altogether. Campbell spotted the leather scroll where it had landed on the deck. He scooped it up and unrolled it, revealing a battery belt and a pair of Tesla knuckles. Okay, I hate him just a little bit less, Campbell said aloud fastening the leather strap around his waist and vigorously winding its crank. The knuckles began to hum and tingle on his fingers. He pulled himself to his feet, 
just in time to greet the quartet of usher thugs re-emerging from inside the car. The fight scene lasted only a few seconds. Three slumped bodies, one more receding on the tracks behind them. He stared down the carriage door, the rhythmic clack of trucks on rails scoring his hesitancy. He silently chided himself, but still could not dismiss the recalled image of that ghastly beetle stepping out onto the old man's face. Sorry for the delay, Brandon, he whispered at last, shaking his head, drawing his pistol. Just a moment's foolishness. He let loose a battle cry and kicked open the door to the observation carriage, dozen earned sparking fists ready to deliver hell. And... found a car full of children, 19 if he'd counted, overseen by a dozen elegantly dressed women and portly, lavishly attired gentlemen, all frozen in mid-activity, staring at his entrance. Broken glass, smoldering cigarettes, and swirling brandy and snifters. Though some children played in the cleared floor, no face was untouched by tension. The car's interior was not laid out in rows of passenger benches or sleeper compartments, but rather a spacious lounge-type area with couches, tables, and even a barn. His throaty yell trailed off weakly into a cough, then silence. The Tesla Knuckles' low crackling was the only noise. A toddler nearby and his mother's skirts was suddenly all lower lip, before succumbing to a wail of his own. Three men stepped forward to greet him. Tree-trunk-thick arms folded over a massive chest of expensive tweed. Wingtip collar, gray velvet waistcoat, and oversized white-gloved hands. Campbell looked up into a menacing, clean-shaven face beneath cropped, sand-colored hair. To his growing dismay, an identical copy appeared to the man's left, this one wearing a steam sword, then another on the right, this one's neck mossed with curly beard hairs. Triplets? Rod's a year younger. The lead nodded toward the bearded one, who was otherwise indistinguishable. Who the devil are you? Mr. Campbell, I am truly amazed to see you. He recognized the voice that rang out from behind the men. Looking past them, he spotted the eye-patched old man, seated at a central table, with a somewhat happier, elevenish boy on his knee. To his astonishment and great relief, a very pale, sleepy-eyed Brandon Hill sat upright in the chair next to Sharnasser, a hazy grin upon his face. Is anyone hurt? Bruce called. We're all safe, no thanks to your friend. Get yourself a drink and come sit down. The mother lulled her screaming child to a steady blubbering. The human blockade stepped slowly aside, maintaining their tripled glowers and folded arms. Campbell took a hesitant step. Amboy seemed to notice. I'm surrounded by my family here, all the sons, daughters, spouses, and grandchildren who agreed to accompany me to Baltimore for this one last grandiose purpose. You've just met three of my boys. I certainly wouldn't set any dangerous creatures loose in their presence, now would I? Campbell shuddered, dropping the old man's gaze, and approached a blonde gentlewoman, presumably one of his adult daughters. She blushed and fanned herself as he smiled and shook her hand. Sharnasser cleared his throat. The elevenish boy slid from his grandfather's knee, ran off after a girl cousin. The ambient wind noise changed a moment as the children opened the carriage's far door. "'Hey, Bruce, who gave you the antidote?' Brandon Hill said. 
Come and sit with me and Mike. He's a nice chap. Campbell winked at the woman, then walked over and took the proffered chair. All business again, trying not to meet the old man's eye patch. He's not a nice chap, Brandon. He murdered Edgar Alex Poe. But that doesn't matter right now. There's an awesome madman out there in a flying machine. Not my friend, by the way. Bent on blowing us all to pieces at Eastwood Ravine. I saw the map. That bridge isn't far from here. We need to stop this train, or... He trailed off, looking around the room at the young children, re-immersed now in their games. Awesome, Brandon Hill said. Office of Supernatural and Metaphysical. Sharnasser stood up, his demeanor become grave. Zachary from the ranch, undoubtedly. Is he planning to blow the bridge? He didn't say. Come with me, he said, walking toward the door through which Campbell had entered. Roderick, Marcus, Arnold, get a crowbar. Campbell squeezed the Tesla in his palm, frowning at the three Titanic brothers. Hill was able to stand and follow, a flaw showing now in his drugged cheer. Hey, Mike, why'd you kill Edgar Allan Poe anyway? Sharnasser paused mid-stride, fleeting glances exchanged between his adult sons and daughters. He looked a moment at Brandon, then lowered his eye. You gentlemen should read his work sometime. He was the most brilliant man I've ever met. Campbell winked once more at the blonde, and the entourage of five walked out of the carriage. The car's mostly enclosed exterior platforms were crowded with three usher henchmen from the next carriage. The young boy and girl who'd left Michael's side stood with them. The ministry agents were suddenly aware of the Sharnasser brothers' encroaching presence. Bruce Campbell sighed as the train rocked him gently back and forth on his feet, wishing for a moment that he'd declined this mission and remained in London. "'Thank you, Victor and Elizabeth,' Michael Sharnasser said. "'Just as I asked. Now get on back inside.' The usher henchman's guns were leveled before the children had even fully re-entered the observation car. "'Esteemed colleagues, these men are not your prisoners.' Sharnasser called across the gap. They claim awareness of some grave threat to the Express, and I'd appreciate it if you'd escort and assist them in their efforts to root out the danger. But you will want to disarm the kangaroo agent here. An usher thug stepped across and began working at Campbell's two belts, his dozener and the Tesla crank. Campbell scowled as his weapons were removed, scanning the sky through the windows and opening, but there was no sign of Amboy or his flying machine. He was almost sorry. The disarmer retreated back to his carriage threshold, carrying both belts. Gentlemen, you'll notice there are no women or young children out here. The elder stepped between both ministry agents, his one eye alight with sinister glee. Campbell grasped his meaning a second too late. Panic exploded as the old man flipped his eye patch, only to reveal a grotesque empty socket. I say, Hill murmured. Campbell's legs buckled. He felt his breath returning in gasps. Sharnasser burst into laughter. Agent Campbell, I wouldn't have expected you to be such a man of phobias. Very funny, old man. You almost got a mouthful of knuckles. The gold bug isn't in my possession at the moment, although I will require her back shortly. One of my twins here has it. I've recreated the Brazilian shaman's inoculations for all of my adult children. They are as safe to handle it as I am. The two of them will accompany you on the forward cars to ensure that all efforts are successful. Be warned, Agent Oz. It'll go hard for you if any harm befalls my boys. To your task now. The ravine draws near. With a small amount of nudging, 
in either sullen or drugged compliance, the twins got Agents Hill and Campbell across the gap to where the ushermen stood with guns still drawn. Coup and escape scenarios auditioned frantically in Campbell's mind, but he rejected each in turn. None seemed survivable for him and Brandon both. The new entourage of seven moved single file into the next car's open door. First the three ushers, then Campbell behind a slouching Agent Hill, with the twins at the last. As they departed, Michael ordered the neck-bearded one to separate the couplers. Roderick worked the crowbar with brute grace deftly unlocking the train car's handshake. He'd soon handbrake their observation car to a gradual receding stop on the rails in the trailing distance. The rear door swung shut in the carriage, pulling the agents, cutting off the outside world, leaving Campbell staring at Arnold and Marcus. The steam sword's bulbous pommel leaked white smoke like a cigarette, glowing hotly against its bearer's protective hide girdle and bracers. He had no idea whether it was Marcus or Arnold that wore it, he also had no idea which of them carried the frightful gold bug. They stood in the entry of a second-class passenger carriage, with rows of seats lining a central aisle from entrance to entrance. It was only sparsely occupied, but the men seated all wore the distinctive look of hired muscle. About eight in all, holding a cluster of seats near the front, watching their procession with great interest. The three standing ushermen and the twins all began up the aisle, moving the ministry men along like a current. "'So what peril are you going to save us from, mate?' asked the swordless one. His emphasis on the word mate was a clear mockery. "'I don't know exactly, pardoner,' Campbell said back. "'But we need to stop the steam engine right now. One, so we don't reach the bridge, and two, so that we're close enough to get back and protect your family, if needed.' "'I think you're bluffing,' he said. "'I think you're an idiot.' The other twin bared teeth and gripped his steam-sword hilt. The usher guardsmen and passengers looked back nervously. Brandon staggered a step with the trains rocking, leaned on Campbell. Bruce, he slurred, almost inaudibly. I've been riding this poisoned act a while, waiting for my moment. I think it's now. The car rocked again and they leapt to action, striking at the usherman trio ahead, momentarily in denial about the formidable twins behind. Hill caused a jarring crack in the closest man's skull. Campbell moved at the one carrying his weapons, swiping the belt, flicking its crank and shoving the Tesla knuckles into the thug's neck. Hill caused another unpleasant sound in the third man, felling him. The other eight were on their feet in an instant. Hill awaited them in a stance. Campbell didn't spare the time to retrieve his guns. He held the Tesla knucks aloft to parry the steam sword. The hissing blade stopped short, just a hand's breadth from his face. Another strike and parry, and he kicked the man backwards into his brother. Bollocks this, said the other, removing his satin gloves, holding his hand aloft to reveal an oval discoloration on his palm. Step aside, Arnold, he bade his brother, a sheen of exultant fury on his face. Dread spilled its cold black ink through Campbell's chest. The black lozenge clung with pincers upon the man's flesh, its carapace bedecked in a hideous skull shape. 
A heavy percussion of thumps in the aisle behind him as the eight usher henchmen collapsed over chairs into the floor. Campbell's jaw clenched, but his terror quickly faded to curiosity, reflected in the looks of puzzlement upon the twins. Brandon. Yeah? Are you seeing this, mate? Are you okay? Maybe dizzy for a second, but I'm fine. We're not collapsing into nightmarish half-death. No, but then we're both full of the antidote. Realization dawned then on the other three men, manifesting in frustration upon the faces of the brothers. Go! shouted Campbell, and the two men rushed toward the front of the car, leaping comatose henchmen as they went, with the enraged Sharnasser twins directly behind, the swordsman slashing clean cuts through the chairbacks with his smoldering blade. The ministry men were soon at the door, charging into the next car, where another dozen usher thugs awaited. Still carrying the belt in his hands, Campbell grabbed it by the crank handle and began to swing it around his head like a child's whirligig, pressing forward, taking great care not to hit his colleague. The henchmen proved no challenge. The difficulty was in getting through them and avoiding steam sword slashes and deadly beetle fist grabs. Arnold's radiant blade bit and scorched the car's interior, seeking flesh and bone. Marcus reached with open palms every time they fell to within arm's length. The two of them pursued an unnerving silence, moving with machine efficiency through all obstacles. Bruce was forced on a few occasions to divert his attention backward, swinging and parrying, using his charged brass fists to buy precious seconds. The beetle's deadly touch passed within a nail's breadth of his face. He dazed Marcus with one satisfying Tesla counterpunch to the chest. Twelve disposed usher thugs and another carriage length later, Campbell and Hill burst onto the platform outside the train's lead car, facing the stenciled back wall of the tender, with the Sharnasser twins still only a few steps and seconds behind. The air tasted gray of soot and grease. The sky above was still clear, where it was visible around the Baldwin smoke plume. Had it been twenty-two minutes? Now what? asked Brandon, pinning the door with his shoulder. A long, smoky steel blade burst through the wood, scalding the air less than two inches from his nose. Get to the engineer and stop this train, Campbell shouted, pulling Hill away from the splintering carriage door. The couplers rocked noisily over the blurred railroad ties and earth below, their iron percussion speeding against his heartbeat. Both men were soon onto and into the tender, scrambling across its mound of jagged coal. The engineers and firemen stared bewildered from the cab. Agent Hill gave him a coal-blackened thumbs-up. Marcus and Arnold stood on the first car's platform, framed by the ruined door. The brothers' mute determination was more unsettling than any taunts or insults could have been. Nothing could have conveyed the anger in their expressions better than the steam from Arnold's blade. The orb at its base glowed like a sun, a hot metal globe beneath his gloved fists. "'This is not what your father instructed, boys, and I promised him I'd see you unharmed.' Campbell called to them, the coal rock slipping beneath his wide stance. He scanned the empty blue sky and mountainous terrain again, saw for the first time the ravine ahead. Eastwood Ravine. His fists clenched of their own accord. The tracks bent steadily to the right, heading directly for a short length of open trestle bridge, leading one lane across to the far side cliff, where the rails disappeared into a thick copse of trees. 
The narrow, steep chasm below gaped like the maw of a hungry, patient beast of stone. From what he could see, the crossing and its lattice structure of boards appeared intact. That bridge is where we die, gentlemen. If you're not going to assist in the prevention of this end, then bloody stay out of our way. And don't come up here after us, Hill called. We have the high ground. Campbell began to twirl the belt again, slowly in front of him now, like an American cowboy with a lariat, backing away across the slipping coal. He locked stairs with Arnold, but could not break the large man's grin. The Baldwin's course had curved to a scrub grass straightaway of track before the trestle bridge. Still no ornithopter. The ministry agents both moved swiftly and cautiously across the tender's unstable coal landscape, coming to its front rim. There they shouted fervently to the three-man engine crew. Attention they earned, but their cries could not penetrate the trio's confusion. Hit the brakes! Hey, stop the train! Stop the blooming train before the bridge! We're going to have to go in there, Agent Hill said to Campbell. They glanced back. The twins had clambered up under the tender now, stood seething on the back, blade and gold bug in hands. With the heaviest of sighs, Campbell turned to face them. My patience with you two is done. He snapped the belt the way his pap had done a thousand times when angered, causing a ripple of blue sparks at the tip of the glove. The Sharnasser brothers' menace abruptly fell away. They stood upright, their intimidation stances giving way to outright fear. Wasting not a moment, the two of them hastened back down the platform from which they'd just come, moving as fast as they could into the lead carriage. Arnold gave one last frightened glance over his shoulder before entering the ruined doorway. "'That's right, and don't come back,' Bruce called. His satisfied smile lasted only a second, his reverie broken by the loudest, "'Hey!' yet from Brandon." This one was tinged with alarm, obviously not directed at the train crew in the cab. The engineer's frightened shouts answered him nonetheless. Campbell turned around to see the cause of the new hollering, spotted it beyond the Baldwin boiler's humps, black and ominous on the tracks ahead. A mining steam engine had cleared the trees on the far side and now sped directly at them on the same track. The two mighty trains barreled toward a mid-trestle collision, 280 versus 242, high over the ravine, mere seconds away. One lens stared lightless from its iron front, glinting like a cyclops' eye in the morning sun. Both engines shrieked their terrified whistles. Bloody hell, Campbell muttered. A wagon-sized, mechanized shape leapt skyward from one of the hopper cars ahead, materializing through the engine's wispy smoke feather, trickling its own thin puff into the sky. Amboy's ornithopter. Its wingspan flapped with wooden grace above the oncoming mining train, hovering in the safety of the air, as opposed to the imminent danger on the rails. The wheel noise changed slightly as the tracks and ties beneath the Baldwin's trucks shifted from terrain to the structure of wood and steel built into rock. The bridge trembled under the weight of the two trains. There was frantic, panicked activity inside the engine's cab, but Campbell wasted no more attention on them. With two bounding, slipping steps, he rugby-charged Brandon Hill, landing his shoulder squarely into his ribs, 
pushing a staggered tackle to the edge of the car. Another hey from Brandon. The two of them teetered a moment on the edge, wide-eyed with rising screams for an infinite moment, their feet still on board for the moment of engine impact. Cowcatcher triangles exploded, meeting point to point at high velocity over the ravine. Campbell found the inner resolve for a silent goodbye to his children, his wife, his women, his women, and his women. Eliza Braun's face even drew a millisecond of regret. They then pitched overboard, screaming abandon with nothing but distant, unforgiving rocks and shallow waters awaiting far below. The wind boxed their ears, worse even than his old pap could have done. The doomed agents pitched end over end into stomach-stealing freefall, the ravine spinning all around them. Even in the grips of dizzying mortal panic, they still felt and heard the collision overhead. The unearthly noise of the train crash on the narrow bridge was a thunder, unlike any that a bomb or an outback storm could have delivered. The violent clash of speeding, man-made gods shook heaven, earth, and below. Campbell's limbs sought to flail, but he would not release Brandon Hill from his plummeting embrace. His eyes fought to close, but he grit his teeth and swore to keep them open, to face the ride to his final moment, wide awake. Madness rising in his chest and his throat, swirling with the vertigo and mortal horror, he screamed his loudest. Not a cry for help or of despair, but the exultant whoop of a man in rapture's grip. He shouted with a fury to wreck his throat and expel his lungs, to rend the night and compete with the deafening clamor of the trains, to send tremors through the American desert sky. The earth leapt upward like the surging gates of hell. Like rams on a contested hill, the two steam engines butted hard together and rose up high from the impact. Sparks and fire erupted as if loosed upon the sky from another dimension. The Baldwin's superior muscle knocked the smaller engine askew to the right, even as its trailing hopper segments went kinked and zigzagged. It fell back to the bridge, dangled a fool's hopeful moment on the trestle's left angle before slipping over the edge, toppling in downward pursuit of the two men. The Baldwin's weight soon brought it down hard upon the structure, its mangled front carapace shattering the length of bridge that caught it, giving way for the entire monstrosity to fall. The great wheeled sculptures of wood and iron departed the rails, found hitherto unknown trajectories in gravity and air, all that would exist for them during the next ten seconds. A disconnected hopper car spilled its rocks like hail, then caromed off of the cliffside, spinning its erratic descent to collide like failed trapeze into the second of the express's passenger cars. Roughly a score of men tumbled inside, it and its conjoined twin, including the Sharnasser brothers, all either comatose or panicked with amplified mortality. Only the two ministry men fell in the open air, like the train segments. A new vessel fluttered into the dance of descent, an awkward wagon shape kept aloft and in flight by massive wood-beamed canvas wings. Awesome Zachary Amboy piloted the wagon ornithopter dexterously into the confines of the ravine, swooping down to the resigned embrace of the two dropping men, all the while avoiding the enormous precipitation of plummeting train cars and engines. With a feat of flying that impressed even himself, Amboy dropped his winged contraption to a point directly below their screaming plunge, letting them impact hard into the upper canvas wings. The men hit hard, rending canvas and snapping wood bones, bounced gently through to land on the wagon floor with wincing thumps, accompanied by a thin snap 
and duet groans of pain. This is twice now that I've saved your British hides. Amboy's magnified, goggled eyes were alight with mania. Campbell found himself slumped over a crate, unable to respond, barely able to think. He counted his breaths beneath the rushing sky, overjoyed for each new second that he'd already consigned to night's plutonian shore. Whatever that meant. An arrhythmic sequence of earth-shaking booms began to ring out from the pits of the ravine, as the train cars began to strike with frequency into the sides and into the valley bottom. Amboy's raucous laughter could still be heard over the explosions and splashes down below as he flapped the lamed ornithopter away, threading upward through the narrow chasm passageway, departing the violence and rising dust. They'd found an open clearing where the disgruntled crew of Amboy's hijacked mining train milled about on the far side of Eastwood Ravine. Amboy assisted the bruised Australian in pulling Brandon Hill from the ornithopter to the grass. The Canadian growled a curse as his wounded heel touched the earth. It had taken Campbell's full restraint not to fling himself upon the ground in a grateful embrace when Amboy had touched them down. His chest and every extremity were battered and bloodied, but intact, without breaks. He took the gauze and length of wood that Amboy had fetched from the wagon, began to set a splint upon Brandon's swollen ankle. And Michael Sharnasser is still in the train car left behind before the ravine? The American asked. Campbell nodded wearily. And the gold bug? Embedded in Marcus Sharnasser's hand, beneath a ton of steel and wood at the bottom of that valley. The fall of the House of Usher. Well, their train at any rate. Amboy looked satisfied. I'm going to need to leave you gentlemen here with the mining trainmen. Michael and I have unfinished business. Campbell stood to face him. Sharnister's entire family's on that car with him, a whole flock of them. Deal with him however you must, but make sure you do it away from the grandchildren. And if anyone innocent gets hurt, you'll answer to me. Amboy's smile was punch card thin. I saved your damn life, man. Twice. Are all Australians this ungrateful? Just me, Bruce Campbell said. Just me. The mining trainmen watched the ornithopter depart with scowls to match the ministry agents. They settled into a circle on the grass, apart from Hill and Campbell. A cool wind diluted the sun's radiant coils. Should we have stopped that man? Brandon Hill grit his teeth against the pain in his ankle. Or does Sharnasser deserve what's coming to him? Yes. No. Maybe. He's used that gold bug for some terrible purposes, but I suppose he could have done a lot worse things. Power like that? He could have set himself king of the Americas, or delivered our entire ministry into the ushers. He didn't. He also could have killed us outright. And yet, here we sit. Oh, God, the ministry. Brandon cupped his hands to his face. So we're going to go back to London to stand before Director Sound, empty-handed? No artifact and no Sharnasser? We'll have our reports and a copy of Amboy's ravings to his awesome superiors. Right. And Sound will tell us to Zeppelin right back here to dig around the wreckage for their precious artifact. Not if we tell them it was destroyed, Campbell said, smiling as comprehension dawned on Hill's face. He looked over at where the displaced trainmen sat in the grass, dealing cards between them. Now come on. We might be waiting a while for Amboy, if he returns at all. 
Let's see if any of these blokes want to lose some money. Jack Mangan is known by us and those in the deadpan community as the Iron Man of podcasting. Since 2005, Jack has been podcasting Jack Mangan's Deadpan Podcast, a variety show that is heavy on the variety. He was also part of the Podio Book Vanguard on podiobooks.com with Spherical Tomy, a novel of despair, a cyberpunk samurai's tale. Jack's short fiction has appeared in audio and in print collections like The Amityville House of Pancakes and Podthology, The Pod Complex. Night's Plutonian Shore is Jack's first steampunk work. We sincerely hope it is not his last. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favourite bookstore or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com or the iBookstore. Original music composed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.